0: Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one bold page of Talmud each day. And on today's page, Bava 117, we come across a difficult story. Have a listen. The Gemara returns to the matter of one who showed another's field to thugs. Ravhuna Bar-Yehuda happened to come to the town of Bey Ebione and came before Rava, who said to him, did any legal incident come to you for judgment recently? Rav Huna bar Yehuda said to him, There was a case of a Jew whom Gentiles coerced, and as a result, he showed them property belonging to another, which the Gentiles later seized. He came to me for judgment, and I deemed him liable to compensate the owner for the loss. At first glance, this may seem unfair. Here, after all, is this poor Jew, forced by a mob to act against his will and disclose the location of another Jew's property, which is later stolen. How is any of it the man's fault? Wasn't he coerced? But the page is here to teach us a difficult lesson about Jewish pride, about the responsibility we have for one another even or especially when times are tough. We can try and hide, try not to stand out, try not to get hurt. We could take off our yarmulkes and our Star of Davids and pretend like none of this anti-Semitic frenzy we see all around us these days concerns us in the least. But it's no use when all is said and done. We are all beholden to each other, responsible for each other's well-being. Today's page reminded me of a beautiful essay I read recently by the writer and filmmaker Gail Kirschenbaum so I asked her to come on the show and share it with us. Here's Gail.
1: I was so excited when, in July 2017, I discovered a star David in an antique store in Warsaw. Stamped on the back was Ludge Ghetto, 1941. I couldn't wait to wear it proudly. In the same way, I wore my Jewish star each time I visited Germany. And if I didn't have one on, I let people know I was Jewish. I made that fact known whenever locals commented I had a German name. I would immediately clarify that I was not German, but Jewish. During the time of the austro hungarian Empire, Emperor Franz Joseph assigned Jews last names. And if you had money, you could buy one. I always wondered if Kirschenbaum, meaning cherry tree, was bought. For some whom I shared this information with, it was unnecessary, as if my looks often gave it away. When I went to Europe for the first time when I was 15 to study art, my waff like body was draped with my waist-long, thick, curly brunette hair, and my face had a nose with a budding bump on it. My mother likened my nose to the Indian on the buffalo nickel a coin that had not been minted since 1938, but was still in circulation when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Being asked if I was Israeli, Hebrew, or Jewish, as I traveled around Europe and Asia was commonplace. Standing beside my blonde mother, our tour guide in India, looked into my eyes and asked me if I was Israeli. In most instances, they wanted to know if I was Jewish and didn't realize that Israeli referred to a nationality, not a religion. In 1979, when I was in Rome, I met an Italian journalist who became obsessed with me. He didn't speak English and I didn't speak Italian, but that didn't stop the roses from arriving and his fascination with me being Jewish. He followed me onto the train to Paris without his passport and enlisted others to translate. He looked at me in awe, not just as a hot Italian man chasing a young American woman, but as if I was the Coke bottle that fell out of the sky in the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy. For him, he met one of the chosen people. When I was in Munich visiting a German movie producer friend, he asked his buddy, who was a computer science professor at Constance University, to spend the day with me since he had to work. His friend arrived sporting a hip ponytail. We headed out together in bikes riding through the chic neighborhood of Grunewald outside of Munich. I noticed a Jewish star spray painted on a wall with a number next to it. I stopped and turned to him asking if he knew what it was. He paused and then he said it was what Hitler had the Jews wear. Soon after he unleashed his anti-Semitic rage. My father told me you can never trust a Jew. They will start to cry to get what they want in business, he continued. I can never go to Berlin with you as it would be too dangerous. I asked if he understood a couple of words in Yiddish as it has similarities to German. He cut me off saying, I don't want to hear that language. There should be one language in this world. Oh, German, I asked. By the time I got home, I learned his family were high-powered Nazis, and most of them ended up in South America. He complained about how hard it was for him to be German and how many people in the world hated him. I wanted every anti-Semite to know I was a Jew. If you have something to say about the Jews, say it to me. When Baruch Goldstein went into a mosque in 1994 and massacred Muslims in Hebron, I went there to do research, record stories, and write a piece. All my Israeli friends thought I was crazy to go, expressing that it was too dangerous. Each time I went, I hitched a ride with a Jewish settler whose car was riddled with dents from bullets. I never felt unsafe. I felt empowered and eager to get the truth. Inquiring minds want to know, and this mind wanted to share what I would uncover. When I went to Russia in 1975, I found my way to the synagogue and connected with other Jews who were refuseniks, Jews who applied for visas to leave and were refused. As a result, many lost their jobs and often had their homes searched, their phones bugged, and their privileges taken away. When I went back in 1989 with a video camera to shoot the rise of anti-Semitism under Glasnost, I was doing this alone no CNN or BBC to protect me. I had a high 8 video camera hidden in my knapsack, a bunch of tapes and two microphones, a lav and a directional mic. I used my empathetic and investigative skills to earn people's trust so they would feel comfortable opening up and sharing the stories on camera with me. When my host turned out to be a KGB informer and wasn't giving me back my passport, I eventually found a way to get it with the help of another journalist. I was never afraid. It took one incident on January 23rd, 2002, the tragic murder of the Wall Street Journal, Jewish journalist, Daniel Pearl, to change that. When he was beheaded by Islamic militants in Karachi, Pakistan, I thought, oh no, I don't want that to happen to me suddenly fear started seeping into me. I would continue to gather information the best I could, but would not be going alone into unfriendly areas again. I live in New York City, having moved there in 1975. Other than the 13 years I spent in California, I have been back in New York City since 2000. The city has the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. It's a place where non-Jewish people understand Yiddish words. How could they not? When you see on the menu a schmear of cream cheese at the bagel store and hear in everyday language words like schlep, schmuck, and nosh. Brooklyn was where both my parents were raised, in addition to many great Jewish creatives, including Barbara Streisand, Woody Allen, and Mel Brooks. New York is also the place where my mezuzah was ripped off twice, in my arts building filled with creatives in the West Village. Upon sharing this information with a fellow artist neighbor, I learned it happened to him as well some years ago. He never put it up again. When it happened to me, my management wanted to mount a camera to see who the culprit was. I told him it wasn't necessary and decided not to put the mezuzah up again. Even though I did that, I still wore my Jewish identity proudly and never felt I needed to hide it other than those who passed by my apartment door. I was never religious or observant. In fact, in my youth, I fled from my Jewish roots as it was being drummed into me by my parents and rabbi that I must marry a Jewish man. Most of my boyfriends were not Jewish. I avoided the privileged and entitled Jews I grew up with, along with the judgment that came along with them. Not only was I supposed to dress a certain way, but my curly hair had to be straightened, which my mother began doing when I was in third grade. Her campaign to get me to have a nose job started when I was 15 years old. All around me, several female students and sometimes a male were going to Dr. Diamond to have him shave the bump off their noses and give them a lift at the tip. Dr. Diamond had his signature nose, which looked like a ski jump. My junior high and high school yearbooks were before and after photos of nose jobs. I refused to have one and my mother's crusade continued, not for years, but for decades. She tried to persuade me my life would be better if I had one. Now though she has always been tight with the dollar, she continuously offered to pay for it. When I appeared. On NBC's Today Show, the first comment she made was, you sound too Jewish, you need to go to elocution classes. Why did she want to change everything about me that was stereotypical Jewish? I resented it. She wanted me to pass for a wasp, yet insisted my spouse had to be Jewish. I hid so many boyfriends from her because they weren't Jewish. And for those I did reveal to her, I lied by telling her they were half Jewish. I've always been attracted to difference and diversity, and my thirst and curiosity to learn about others have led me to travel the world. Along the way, I have made friends. I was often teased about having my own United Nations. When I was introduced to a psychologist and prolific author who founded an NGO, I was honored when she invited me to speak at the United Nations. Being part of an international community has always been important to me. When I woke at 4 a.m. on October 7th to go to the bathroom, something I do daily, I checked my phone. There was an email from my cousin Barry. The subject line read, war in Israel. In 1981, Barry moved from Brooklyn to a kibbutz on the border with Lebanon. Our maternal grandfathers were brothers. I had never known about Barry's existence until 10 years ago when I researched my mother's childhood for a film I was making. Barry informed me that we had met years before and shared a photo of me at his brother's bar mitzvah. Must have been 12 years old at the time. We were both thrilled to connect as adults, sharing an interest in our family genealogy. He began sending me many archival photos and even an article from the Brooklyn Eagle, a newspaper long gone, about my grandfather's stables, tragic fire. We also shared a love for communication. He had often sent long detailed mass emails to his friends and family, sharing news of people who were unknown to me. Many of these emails I didn't even read, but this one caught my attention because of his alarming subject line. He mentioned the Nova Festival and how his family had friends there who were attacked. One lost his leg. I went down the rabbit hole, reading everything I can find on the social media platforms. Videos of the horrors started appearing. Barry wasn't the only relative I had in Israel. I have a huge family on my other side who found their way there in the 20s when my uncle Joseph moved from Poland. I started writing and texting them. They were all safe, but there was great concern for the young ones serving in the IDF. Then... I began communicating with friends. I have many there. One sent me a video of a young Thai man who was at the Nova Festival. He was lying on the ground, covered in blood, and moved his arm when the terrorist, whose GoPro was recording, grabbed a shovel and beheaded him. I wish I had never opened that video. It haunts me constantly. Barry kept his list of people informed daily with long, detailed emails. Soon... He shared that they had to evacuate the kibbutz due to Hezbollah. They moved further south to another kibbutz where one of his sons lived. Another son took his family to London. I waited eagerly for his daily updates. In one of his long emails, Barry briefly mentioned he was having surgery the following day and wouldn't be writing. A couple weeks later, he died from melanoma. I was shocked. I lost my cousin and kindred spirit and was concerned for his wife. Lying on my sofa bed with a broken foot, I was consumed by reading the news. I didn't have to go far. I didn't have to leave my bed to suddenly start feeling the attack. The peace-loving academic I had known for years was filling my direct messages on social media with anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic videos. To her... I was now part of the evil colonizers committing genocide in Palestine. I tried to engage her in a text chat, but it led to more videos and finally she responded that she didn't have time to speak. I learned that one of my PhD neighbors, who's an academic and artist and as pale as Snow White, posted a swastika superimposed on an Israeli flag. Many of my non-Jewish friends went silent and several vanished. What were they thinking? Hatred, rage, and and unbridled anti-Semitism unleashed all around me, on the streets of New York City and campuses. Protests defaced the front of my beautiful library on Fifth Avenue. Shut down Grand Central Terminal chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. End the occupation now. Resist boycott. We will never die for Israel's lies. Bulletin boards in my building has signs saying boycott Israel. How could they hold pro-Hamas signs and support the terrorists? Don't they realize that anyone gay or trans would be killed in Gaza? Are they unaware that Hamas' objectives extend beyond the annihilation of Israel and the extermination of the Jews, aiming to dismantle Western civilization as it currently exists and implement Sharia law? Instead of sticking my head out proudly, I retreated into my shell and I hid. I removed my Jewish star, changed my name on the rideshare apps, and for the first time in my life, I understood why. My mother wanted me to have a nose job, straighten my hair, and pass for a Gentile. The trauma experienced by my grandparents, I now felt. I went from seeking the company of those different from me, to craving the presence of my people, fellow Jews to feel safe. I left New York to care for my hundred year old mother in Southern Florida, where there is a high concentration of Jews. I feel safe now. I'm attending many Jewish events where I'm making new friends. I'm planning to wear my Sarah David again, not daily, not everywhere, but on occasion. My strength is returning as my fear subsides. It's probably a false sense of security. But I no longer feel alone and isolated in a sea of unknowns, a sea filled with piranhas. I'm better now. My blood pressure has gone down, and slowly I will stand up again and stick my neck out. Am Yisrael, high.